And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why disaffected employees are your greatest cybersecurity risk. Plus, the government's best and most accomplished get honored this evening. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the wheels were about to fall off the bus. Mission failure was a real threat. Employees in the office of the chief financial officer at the Health and Human Services Department were in dire straits. Sheila Conley, the long-serving deputy CFO, initiated a decade-long culture change that moved the office from dismal to thriving. In this week's Federal Report, Conley tells executive editor Jason Miller about what it takes to drive this type of change. In those early years, about 10 years ago, one of the issues that we recognized is that while we were accomplishing the most significant things like a clean audit opinion and um, meeting reporting deadlines, that work was being done on the backs of a few people at senior levels, uh, really through heroic efforts. But that is not a sustainable way to build an organization. And so at that point in time, we realized we need to do something. We really need to look at our organization. We need to look at our workforce. We need to make sure folks understand what's expected of them, what's expected at every level, whether you're an executive, a manager, or staff member. And we really undertook a comprehensive review of our mission and how we were going to accomplish that mission through our workforce. One of the things when people say, well, we're going to review how our culture is, look at the mission. We can't do the work on the backs of just a few employees. That's one of those things where people say, okay, well, that's really nice to say, but it rarely, or there's a feeling at least that how often does that work out for the, in, in the good way? It's just, it's, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. What did you do to solve them? The feedback, people say it's a gift, but it was a painful gift uh, to receive, but necessary. Once we acknowledge the extent and pervasiveness of our issues, then we as a leadership team had to be, there are a couple of things that we agreed to take on at that time, 10 years ago. One, we knew we had to be intentional. That workforce engagement and developing people and improving a culture doesn't happen by accident just because you have individual, you know, great individuals working for you. You have to, as an organization, be quite intentional and deliberate about making this a priority. Two, it's a continuous process. It doesn't change overnight. You can't change culture in a short period of time, and you really need to do it over an extended period of time. It's a continuous effort. You're never done. <laughs> the environment changes. The world changes. Our people changes, change. And um, the expectations of our organizations change. So it's a continuous process. A continuous feedback loop is critical. We've used the FEVSCORE results uh, to help us monitor our progress here, which those results have been essential. You know, you have results at the agency level, at the sub-agency level, and then where you have offices that have results from more than 10 employees, 
you can actually get much more detailed information. And so by encouraging our folks to respond to the survey, uh, we've been able to get quite a bit of really more granular detail about how we're doing, whether leaders are leading, whether our managers are managing, and whether our staff is fully engaged in in their efforts. When you talk about you have to be intentional, it's got to be a priority, it doesn't happen overnight, some of that comes back to leadership and, and something that you or, unfortunately, your boss, the CFO, that changes because that's a political appointee. What were some of those tricks or efforts you made, initiatives you went forward with to make sure folks knew that this is still a priority today, still a priority tomorrow, still a priority in six months? Yeah, there are a couple of things, and if you don't mind, I'll help. I would like to explain a little bit of our journey. So we weren't in a good place. We realized we had to improve things. We, as a leadership team, we had many vacancies at our senior executive level. We also had a lot of vacancies at the management level and the workforce level. I decided to start at the senior executive level to really focus on making sure we hired and recruited and hired executives that had the right kind of mindset that bought into where we wanted to go, not where we had been, not where they had been, but where we as an organization wanted to go. It turns out that each of our SES positions here, we have five total. There were four at the time. Each of those, uh, we had three that, that were vacant over during this early period of time. In addition, we created some new management positions at the GS-15 level, and we hired quite a few GS-15s of the group that was on board in our GS-15 managers in 2015, the vast majority of those are still on board today. And we made it very, again, intentional to ensure that those professionals who had come up through either accounting, auditing, statistics, financial systems, IT backgrounds, cybersecurity, um, all various technical accomplishments that allowed them to get to the positions where they were perhaps aren't the best experiences to learn how to manage people and organizations. And so we made concentrated efforts to hire very capable people, have them work together as a core of managers across so they had some sounding boards, and then we worked on training and development efforts. As far as the workforce goes, we made, we worked with our human capital professionals to come and talk to the entire office to clearly explain that if you're a GS 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, here are the expectations for your position in a generic sense and then mapped with your position description so you, you know, with the particulars of your of your job. But we wanted to ensure that every person in the office knew what the expectations were. And as you move up in the organization, those, while the expectations are similar, 
your degree of responsibility and independence and ability to run more things in your span of control increases. That was very illuminating for a lot of people. This seems to be almost the top-down change. Was there a reason you said, let's start at the top to change the culture to top? Is that the idea that it bleeds down to the bottom? Given where we were with those vacancies, we took the top-down approach. We had a series of, of vacancies my theory was if we can hire exec- bring on board key executives who we had a shared mindset about the organizational development and individual development and growth and where we wanted to go as an organization then that would cascade down through the management tier and the the general workforce i mean but I will tell you, in terms of employee engagement and how we've been able to improve our results and improve the culture over time, it's a combination. I mean, you need the tone at the top, you need that mood in the middle um, by the management team, and then you need the buzz at the base. And it all works together. It's upward, it's downward, it's across. And it is somewhat infectious because it not only is restricted to the walls of our organizations within the Office of Finance, but we have much better relationships now with our colleagues across the Office of the Secretary as well as working with those we serve in the the CFO community across HHS. Let's jump over to the second piece. You said be consistent, be continuous discuss how that worked. Initially, our employee engagement score, which is a key key measure that we, we look at, in, in, in addition to other feedback loops. But we started out, our employee engagement was under 60%. It's now today 88%. That's about a 50% increase over time. So we're very proud of that. But again, we're proud at that moment in time. It's a continuous effort, right? In terms of global satisfaction, that's gone from 47% back in 2013, and now it's at 82%, so about a 75% increase in that score. And then the belief in action, and this, I think, is critical for the future. Our belief in action, meaning folks in our organization think these results are going to be used to improve the culture, improve the workplace environment, create a positive professional working environment. Uh, that's gone from 43% in 2013 to 85% in 2022. So that's about a 98% increase. But these are static, right? That, those are the results as of uh, 2022. And so how do we assure ourselves that this will continue? There's a couple things that we've done, and we've continued to build on these things over time. I mentioned bringing in new people, hosting a workshop. In 2015, we began to use broadly among our our leadership team, executive coaching for both our our executives and our managers and supervisors. In 2016, we brought on board an administrative officer who's charged with employee engagement. That was the first time we developed a, was the inaugural Office of Finance FEVS action plan so that we could then We love our positive scores, but we track very closely the negative scores. And we look at the the highest negatives every year that come back through the individual questions, responses. And those we look at, we try to unpack it. The FEVS is great to tell you where you are, where you might have issues, but it doesn't tell you how to solve them. That's up 
to us. That's why we're here. (laughs) So we put together an action plan that was 2016 and have continued that. And then in 2017, we expanded our executive coaching service to the entire Office of Finance workforce. And I don't know about you, but as I was coming up in my career, having the chance to have an executive coach to help me, a sounding board, uh, just someone to talk to, advise, counsel, et cetera, that is, would have been a tremendous gift, I think, to me, and, and many of our people have taken advantage of it. I would say most over time. Sheila Connolly, Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Health and Human Services Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out all our federal reports at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the government's best and most accomplished will get honored this evening. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Service to America Medals program, known as the SAMIs, and administered by the Partnership for Public Service, each year recognizes the most accomplished career civil servants. Here on the Federal Drive, we've been featuring interviews with SAMIs finalists each week since the spring. Well, tonight, the partnership will announce the winners at the Kennedy Center. And joining me with a preview, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, Max Steyer. Max, good to have you on. Thank you so much, Tom. You're awesome. It's amazing. You have been such a powerful voice of sharing these stories, and it's great to be back here with you. Thank you. And tonight, those attending, what can they expect to see? An amazing evening. I would never say that this is the best ever on deck because they're all so extraordinary, but it's the best ever. It really is a wonderful set of federal employees who are going to be honored here. We will have truly the top leadership of our government there to recognize them and to applaud them. And we will have an audience filled of admirers and leaders across sectors who care about an effective government and will see it in real time. With all the conversation around government shutdowns, it brings really to the fore how vital it is for us to have a vibrant workforce that is represented by these honorees. And that point you made about the government leadership being there, I think that's really crucial. And will you have a good contingent of cabinet-level types of people? Because I think the awards have so much more meaning to the career civil servants when the political appointees or the executives above them at the agencies are also there to acknowledge this because it makes it that much more meaningful. 100% our expectations. I will have everyone from the White House Chief of Staff to the secretaries or the leaders of every agency that is being honored or that their employees are being honored, in addition to a virtual complete cabinet of deputy secretaries and others. So it really is a wonderful showing. And look, the reality is these jobs are incredibly hard, whether you're career or political. They're all serving the public. Oftentimes, the political appointees are focused on the policy announcement and not as much on the career people who are getting it done. And this is a testament to their recognition about how important supporting the workforce is. So it's encouraging and exciting. Yeah, they say management is the art of getting things done working through others. So the skilled political appointees understand if they want to get their agenda done, then they have got to support the standing career staff. You're exactly right. And it's the standing staff here right now and very importantly, investing in that next generation of federal employees. The reality is we don't have that in the pipeline right now. And 
it really is a leadership responsibility to invest in that future. I think it's also noteworthy that some of the SAMI's finalists are not necessarily elderly. <laughs> that is, they haven't been working for 25, 35, 45 years. I know that I interviewed one entomologist, Dr. Schmidt Jifris. She's 34 years old and has done amazing work at the Agriculture Department in helping crop safety for the Northwest apple producers by engineering insects that are there to devour the bad insects, this kind of thing. Only 34 years old. It's pretty amazing. It is. And we have an emerging leaders category where we try to highlight those folks that are under the age of 35 and nonetheless have done extraordinary work. And, you know, obviously there's the team that works for the hostage recovery office at the State Department. There's plenty of amazing folks that are younger entry in their career. I will tell you, we actually hired someone at the partnership to run our research effort who was, I believe, year one emerging leader finalist. And just uh, yesterday, I spoke to uh, somebody who was another finalist who's got now a senior position at OPM running the new the new FEB, Federal Executive Board Network. So it's wonderful to see these people continue in government and perform at extraordinary levels. So you're right. I think it's a now proposition and a future proposition. We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service and something we usually don't do in this format, but it's probably a good idea to acknowledge the corporate support that this program gets because otherwise it wouldn't happen, the gala wouldn't happen, the awards, pretty complicated and long process you have for choosing these people. You don't pick them personally. So who are some of the top sponsors? Thank you. And you're right. Like the reality in the nonprofit world is you have a double bottom line. You are motivated by your mission, but you have to have the money to get it done. And we get support from individuals, from companies, from foundations, and from fee for service for government. On the corporate side, for SAMIs, we have everyone from Microsoft and Google on the technology side. Uh, SAIC is another huge sponsor of ours, Lockheed. And, you know, these are companies that recognize that an effective government and, frankly, a supported civil service is fundamental to their success and to our country's success. So it's wonderful to have them. And just getting back to the awardees and the work that they do, it's kind of amazing, and you can comment on this, that this work goes on, great work in large and small mission areas, lots of leverage. And it goes on throughout the political vicissitudes, operating at almost like in another planet of the government. But the day-to-day -day work is extraordinary and goes on no matter what's going on down the mall from wherever they might be. Look, I think that for many Americans, when you say the federal government, they think about bickering politicians in Washington. And that is, in my view, or not just in my view, the research we've done is, is the heart of why there is a reduction in trust in our government, which is a real problem. And the reality of it is that, as you just suggested, we have 2 million civil servants, 80% outside the Washington, D.C. area. You know, 40% of them are veterans. Like, these are things that most Americans don't know. And they're working very hard with difficult circumstances on behalf of the public, doing things that really matter. And once more, the shutdown activities have really brought to the fore one of the extra challenges of being a public servant, the idea that you um, have the sort of Damocles over your head and, you know, you may be required to work uh, without pay or required not to work without pay until those bickering politicians do their job. Um, that's crazy. And it's uh, no way to run our government. And it, it hurts the American public. It 
frankly, it costs more to shut the government down than to keep it open and allow the public to get the great support that they deserve. And I'm trying to remember, has there ever been a Sammy's Awards Gala during a shutdown? There was uh, once, 2013. I will say that emotionally, it was incredibly powerful because, again, it was a embodiment of the stupidity of shutting the government down because here you had these amazing people who were delivering incredible services to the public and being told that they could not work. Michael Lewis, in his fifth risk, uh, paperback volume, did a chapter on one of our Sammy's honorees who was furloughed and the loss that that involved. And it's craziness. It's really... It's the same thing as burning down your own house. It, it, it really makes zero sense, and it costs us all. And occasionally some members of Congress have been at the galas that I've attended, so maybe the more of them that get over there, the less likely they'll be to take that brinkmanship type of step. One would hope, and we expect we'll have you know several members at least uh, this time around, too. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Have a great gala tonight, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Um, It's a pleasure and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you again for all that you do. We'll post this interview along with all of our Sammy's finalist interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if it does get passed, the defense authorization bill has quite a few surprises. But first, why disaffected employees are your greatest cybersecurity risk. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Insider cybersecurity threats, they're just as potent as Russian and Chinese hackers. Some employees make mistakes, clicking on that bad phishing link. Unhappy or disgruntled employees, that's another matter. My next guest says such people are far more susceptible than average to social engineering attacks. Max Shire is Chief Information Security Officer at Optiv, and he joins me now. Mr. Shire, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. And this idea of this disgruntled employee or someone who's unhappy with their work, I guess in some ways since time immemorial, they are people you would have to worry about. But now with the cyber threats getting so potent, it's something even worse. What have you found? Well, I think it's a great topic to talk about because ultimately for cybersecurity professionals and practitioners, the insider threat, whether intentional or unintentional, has always been the biggest threat for government agencies and others that work in the defense industry or government industry. And to your point, the malicious insider, the intentional insider is the one that really can cause the most serious damage. You know, the unintentional insider threat, the people that are just trying to circumvent security controls to make their jobs easier, those that click on malicious phishing links, etc., those that really are more risky in that regard, the ones that are more open to clicking on the phishing threats or those that are open to attempts to solicit data over social media on LinkedIn, for example, which is a huge target for malicious hackers, et cetera. I think those different insiders are the ones that we as cybersecurity professionals over time have most worried about. And I think there are two different instances that we really need to target in different ways. The malicious insider, the ones that are intentional, I think those are really looked at with technical controls. We look at it with risk-based alerting or user-based analytics to try and detect those that maybe are doing something nefarious on the network that are outside of their normal day-to-day activities. And with the cybersecurity tools that are coming out today, I think that's making our job a little bit easier in that regard, especially with machine learning and AI built into a lot of the cybersecurity tools that are coming out today. 
that is really helping us be more efficient in catching those malicious actors. Those are really helping us as cybersecurity practitioners become more effective in what we do. But you still have to go out and pay for those tools and implement them, and they are expensive. And so there is some slow uptake by some agencies or other companies that are dealing with the government on implementing those tools. And so we need to make a concerted effort to continue to push for additional security requirements to enable companies to be able to go do those things. And also, I think as we implement those tools and prices come down a little bit, it can help enable those companies to implement those tools over time. Well, let me ask you this. If someone is susceptible to phishing because they're maybe worried about their job or they might have been recently laid off or they're on administrative Mm -hmm. leave and still have access, whatever the case might be, are they susceptible to the same phishing attacks that everybody else is getting in the organization that might be targeted? Or is there some mechanism by which a phisher could discover someone is disgruntled and target them with a tailored type of phishing attack? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the advent of social media, it is absolutely a lot easier to understand who's more disgruntled within the workplace, who's putting the information out there that they dislike a decision that was made at work or they're unhappy in their job. And with LinkedIn, with Facebook, et cetera, if you have your profile set to public, anybody can go out there and scrape your data in the posts that you've made, et cetera. I have several posts out there that have been made public because of the position I'm in, right? So there's a lot more opportunities, I think, for malicious actors out there to tailor very specific phishing attacks to people that are in specific positions. And you see that more and more, especially with generative AI out there. You can create a phishing attack in seconds that is very effective and can be very widespread, tailored to people that you've scraped off of LinkedIn. And so I think it's even more important for us to be hyper aware almost about phishing attacks and making sure that we keep up on the security awareness for our employees and others that are in positions that may be susceptible to those types of attacks. And to your point, I think now, especially with the continuing resolution that occurred and the potential now for furloughs still in the future and the government shutdown in the future, I think there's probably a heightened, I don't want to say disgruntledness of employees out there, but Obviously, there are some concerns out there that may make them more susceptible to attacks, whether it be, you know, for financial gain or finding other positions, et cetera. So, yes, to your point, I think we need to be more aware now more than ever because our information is out there that we will be receiving more targeted phishing attacks. And I think specifically as you have events like this within the government or otherwise, you're going to have malicious actors that are going to target those specific employees that are affected by those events to try and take advantage of them and make them more susceptible to attacks like that. We are speaking with Max Shire. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at Optiv. And what is the general motivation of the people launching these attacks? Do they want the credentials and the assets of the individual, or are they still trying to get at the agency or the organization's assets through this phishing? I would say it's it's more tailored towards the organization, right? It's value for their effort. You know, to them, the individual themselves, you know, getting access to their home network isn't necessarily what they're looking after. They're looking for the big fish and and getting credentials to their work assets so that way they can compromise the agency, whether it be for ransomware or if it's a state-sponsored actor for technology or information to further their attacks within the agency and move laterally within the government. And I think that ransomware may not be thought necessarily 
as a huge target for the government, but it is, and it's increasingly becoming so. And I think we've seen those types of attacks recently where emails have been stolen and other data has been stolen. And I think that furthers their ability to be able to attack the, the agency further or even move laterally within the government. And to your point, I think government employees and those that deal with the government will continue to get these attacks. And I would expect it to increase, actually, as, as time goes on. And let me ask you this. When people that are alert are getting phishing attacks, very often there are clues in the content of the email that pretty much mm-hmm. you give it away. Even now, they still spell things wrong or there's a weird return address. <laughs> you know, the, the address That's of the right. origin is obviously not who the sender wants you to purport to be. Can artificial intelligence maybe be applied to that process of identifying what are the anomalies in a message that identify it as something you want to filter out? Your filter should Correct. catch. Absolutely. Yeah, and today's modern tools do that. And I think that's where we're really seeing fire fought with fire. And generative AI and other AI tools out there that are creating these phishing attacks that really remove the traditional red flags that you would see, such as misspelling, as you had mentioned, have been removed with generative AI. It's just they've become extremely effective in creating templates for malicious actors to send out very effective phishing emails. And so you have to fight fire with fire now. And so AI and machine learning is being implemented in all of the email security tools that are detecting phishing attempts, et cetera, and they're pretty effective. But the most effective tool is still the end user. And if they do get a phishing attempt or an email that they suspect to be a phishing attempt, they have to report that. And most modern tools now or most modern implementations do have a button where users can click and say it's an attempted phishing email. And then that would actually be reviewed by a security professional. And I think we still need to educate users and make that the highest priority to be on the lookout for those types of things. And if they do receive something that they're not expecting, even if it looks legitimate, if there's an attachment, don't click on it. Contact the person that sent it to you to say, hey, did you send me this attachment? You know, I wasn't expecting this email. And then report it and or talk to that person. And if they didn't send it, then report it. But if you're unsure, definitely don't click on anything within that email, whether it be a link or an attachment. Good advice. Max Shire is the Chief Information Security Officer at Optiv. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if it does get passed, the Defense Authorization Bill has quite a few surprises. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Conference work on the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024 proceeds, even as nothing else in Congress seems to be working. As always, the NDAA has provisions affecting defense contractors. My next guest says that sometimes good intentions aren't matched by good legislation. The president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau, joins me now. And David, before we get to the NDAA, just a couple of thoughts on the fact that two, three weeks have passed since the advent of the continuing resolution. And really, things look exactly as they did before the last potential shutdown. And doesn't seem to be a lot happening in the next few weeks remaining. Well, Tom, thank you for having me. And, and you're right. One of the interesting things about a government shutdown, of course, is you can actually get into one without doing anything. Uh, you can't get out of it without doing something, but you can get into it just by Congress not acting to pass anything. 
And we came very close to that back on September 30th, uh, obviously just at the last possible minute, the last possible hour, really, the 11th hour of the evening there before the president signed the uh, continuing resolution. So what are the prospects? I mean, it's still a month away before the uh, expiration date of the current CR, but the House is now two weeks without a speaker. No work can be done without that. And even if you have a speaker, it's not at all clear what legislation is going to pass that'll keep us open. So obviously, from a government contractor's point of view, we're taking very seriously the need to prepare for the possibility of another government shutdown. And we learned a little bit from the run-up back at the end of September. All right. Well, we'll have to see what happens there. I mean, right now, let's see if there's a speaker. You know, They were voting today, and perhaps there will be a speaker, then maybe something can happen. But the NDAA conference, people are working or talking anyhow. But you found a couple of things deep in there that you feel may not actually get the goal that you agree with that Congress is after. And one of those is the notice of mergers and acquisitions that normally go to the Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission, also going to the Defense Department. What's that all about? Well, first of all, you're right. Every year we're wrestling with the question of what will the National Defense Authorization look like. It's almost the only constant, right, other than appropriations. Congress has passed the NDAA every year now for 60 years. So it's something that becomes a vehicle for a lot of other legislation since it is a reliable bill that will be signed by the president. PSC always has some concerns, but this year has a new twist. You know, uh, there are provisions that the intent is something with which we agree and it makes sense. Uh, in this case, the section from the Senate, Section 832, would require companies to include DOD in the notices that they file with Justice and FTC about pending mergers or, or acquisitions. And what could be bad about that? Let DOD know as well, especially if they're going to be affected by it. They're going to need to act on it. But it turns out that inside the provision, as often happens, there's some additional language there. And it actually opens up what's covered by these merger or acquisition reporting requirements to be something way more than mergers and acquisitions. It could be teaming agreements. It could be strategic alliances. It could be a whole host of things that go well beyond the traditional mergers and acquisitions. None of that as far as I can tell, was pushed for by the federal government. But if enacted, this would be hard to implement, and it's not clear to me what the advantage of that would be. First of all, it would flood the notification process with numerous, I mean, teaming agreements are formed for almost every contract you bid on, right? And how do you put a value on the teaming agreement? Because those reporting requirements have a threshold. It's got to be X amount of dollars, depending on the size of the company, et cetera, and the size of the deal. Sure. Um, well, it's hard to tell what they're really worried about, I guess, with this provision. But I think maybe the fundamental fear is just the shrinking defense industrial base. And so anything that looks like it could maybe affect that, they want to know about. That could be, although, you know, teaming agreements are the strongest way to, to increase that competition and keep it going. Because if one company by itself is not able to compete with somebody else, a teaming agreement is the way you get that competition. And you know, we do have problems across the federal government of multiple different conflicting rules governing competing uh, teaming agreements for different contracts, uh, especially government-wide acquisition contracts. But none of this makes any sense. And so we believe that, in fact, the provision should be changed to uh, eliminate these new definitions and these new categories of reporting requirements. We're speaking with David Berteau president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. The other provision in here has to do with progress payments tied to performance, but what it is they consider performance seems a little off. 
Well, you know, in the federal government, and especially this is true in the Defense Department, progress payments are an important element of, of contract financing because it takes so long to complete some of these contracts and deliver the results. Uh, you know, an aircraft carrier or an airplane that takes years to, to construct that uh, the companies can't finance the whole thing, especially since the cost of financing is not an allowable cost. So the government pays payments based upon the progress that you've made towards the final delivery. This is actually a resurrection of something that was proposed about five years ago, which was to tie progress payments to something more than just progress towards producing and delivering the results, right? And so it makes sense to tie progress payments to those performance. But if you read the provision, it would actually have criteria that's not about performance, uh, not about delivering systems on, on time or on budget. It's about input measures like business systems or subcontracting goals, you know, the important elements of contract compliance, but we've got plenty of mechanisms to mandate and track contract compliance. Why not have progress payments tied towards actual progress? Yeah, wouldn't that be a great concept? The next thing you know, it'll be how many electric cars do your employees bring to the government sites? And that'll be the, the measure of whether you get money or not, perhaps. I'm kidding. But it sounds kind of like the types of measures they're looking at and not really budget performance of the system you're delivering. And, you know, we still have a problem with inflation in the government contracting business. You know, the president's got a pay raise coming through. It's in the in the bills that Congress is passing and the president can do it for federal civilians unless Congress objects it. A pay raise is 5.2 percent for fiscal year 2024, which we're in right now. There's no equivalent increase in recognition of the worker costs that contractors are incurring, which are actually up 18% now since the start of COVID. So uh, we were happy to see a provision in the NDAA that still allows the government to recognize these costs and where funds are available to arrange to compensate companies for those increased costs. We haven't seen that exercise very much, but at least the provision is still in the bill. All right. But the NDAA has to pass. And the question is, are they making any progress? No one really knows at this point if they're making progress on the sticking point, which has nothing to do with any of this, but whether the Defense Department pays for transportation for abortion services for service members. That seems to be what has the two chambers of Congress apart. So who's going to blink? Every year, of course, there are provisions of varying degrees of difficulty in these conferences, and there's hundreds of provisions between the House and the Senate version. There are things that can be worked out at the staff level. There are issues that need to rise to the level of the staff directors, uh, and then there are issues that need to go all the way to the chairs and ranking members. I suspect that some of these social issues will, in fact, be uh, those that have to go maybe even all the way to the leadership of the House and Senate. And of course, without leadership on the House, that's going to be difficult to resolve. So we have great hope that we can get a National Defense Authorization Act and get it done. By the way, those negotiations will continue, whether there's a shutdown or not. The Congress will probably keep going on that, but we're going to watch this closely from here on out. But if there is a conference report and they agree on a bill, the House will have to have a speaker, though, right, to be able to vote on it. Well, back, this is back to, you know, will we will we get a speaker? Will we have a shutdown? I mean, the House is going to be voting. We're going to see how that comes out. I learned a long time ago, Tom, not to build my plans around my ability to predict the outcome of votes. And so we're going to be there as well. But, you know, until then, the, the preparation for a possible shutdown back to that, we know that there's guidance that's been prepared for contracting officers, but that's not been shared with the contractors. And so we don't actually know what to expect in a shutdown. Contracts keep going unless there's a reason to stop. But sometimes the government provides a reason to stop, even if you don't need one. 
David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Navy wants to make life easier for small businesses. Officials have a list of ways small businesses can make themselves stand out in trying to win contracts. For how the Navy encourages help from small business, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric spoke with the Navy's acting chief technology officer, Justin Finelli. The Atlantic Council uh, came out with an interim report in April, and they said, hey, we think the DOD can be better on innovation adoption, and we agree. For instance, PEO Digital was doing uh, zero SIBRs. I think PEO MLB may have been doing zero or one SIBRs, and we leaned really hard into that. And so um, uh, that's one place where we're just getting more creative. We're looking at more mechanisms. We have something that's called an antics, A-N-T-X, so that we can do commercial solution offerings. Uh, We have uh, both phase one and phase twos going, and we've gotten better at those, the learning curve and the people from these either small businesses or non-traditionals who are leaning in. Like, we've streamlined that process. And one of the ways that we're doing that is we're saying, hey, these are the objective, quantitative, show us where we were and how you'll improve us. That puts a little bit more ownership on them to deliver something, but it also puts a little bit more focus on how good are they at the job, not how good are they at the interview. And so, uh, like we said, the companies and the organizations uh, and the partnerships have helped with that. Um, In general, we're also, I think, attracting even more talent than we were before. And so this helps from a dual-use case perspective. We're getting some commercial folks in. Uh, I met last night with the author of a book that's coming out called Valley Meets Mission. Uh, He was a venture capitalist, and now he's out teaching at Stanford. I teach at Georgetown, and we were talking about how we can collaborate to bring more people who would normally work in Silicon Valley into the government or mix those partnerships. This is a really exciting time to streamline talking about the work and then spending more time on the work so that we can get those uh, measurable outcomes up every month, every quarter, every day. What's the biggest challenge to accomplishing that? I'd say the biggest challenge is how bad we want it. Uh, We want to make this way better. And uh, and so um, one of the ways that we focused our energy is prioritizing based on biggest outcomes. I'd say uh, impatience is the biggest challenge because we are really eager to get after this. And we know some things take time, but if you assume that it's going to take a lot of time, it will. Um, and so uh, picking winners and making sure that uh, they're as uh, aggressive and hungry as possible and that we're unleashing them uh, and that they produce that through the follow-through phase is the biggest thing. Most of the impediments, the, the um, senior leadership support uh, has been the best I've seen it in 25 years. Uh, the alignment is uh, pretty good, and I think the more wins we have, the better the alignment will be. Uh, ultimately, one thing that's coming up is Operation Cattle Drive has been around for a, a few years, and uh, and we want to really up the ante on that cattle drive piece. And I believe Enterprise Services um, is uh, kind of the yin-yang with cattle drive. So if we get after both of those, uh, then we have uh, potentially uh, a, a clearer path to serving our warfighter better. How are you working with DIU? Are you using OTAs or other authorities? Yeah, uh, that and more. So um, the Valley of Death uh, predates all of us uh, from a technology adoption, innovation adoption perspective. And so um, it's something that we've really had our eyes on because we think that it can help mission outcomes more than ever. And DIU was one that we reached out to uh, as a partner uh, probably about 16 months ago. The PEO previously hadn't done a ton of work with them. 
and they've been outstanding in terms of uh, awarding OTAs, cataloging items for us, and then just general tech scouting. Uh, during the panel, I, uh, I got off stage and had a text message from one of our uh, DIU LNOs, and he said, hey, I have something that will absolutely solve one of the problems we've discussed previously. So they are hungry, uh, and they are uh, an amazing partner, and we're looking to take them and other R&E partners and other ecosystem partners from uh, O&R and venture-backed companies and just non-traditionals as well as our traditionals to get things moving in the very right direction. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? What are things are you looking to expand upon? IT for IT's sake is not only not interesting, but it underserves our warfighters and that there is an opportunity to improve their lives and put more time on what they signed up for in terms of duty. So a challenge coin, it said, no comms, no bombs. In general, the connectivity is the air we breathe. And so if we can make that seamless and frictionless and dependable, we want to do that. So what types of mission outcomes? Well, the five that we look at most are user time lost. And so is there something that is reducing friction, heartache, uh, dependability? Two is operational resilience. And so that is everything cyber. And then can we fight hurt? Can we take a punch? Three is net promoter score. So realize that we're not someone who's hawking software, but we do care about our customer experience a lot. So we worked with the White House and they said, hey, this is a novel way to measure whether someone's really excited about something or not in the government. And so we absolutely have customers. They're amongst the best possible customers in the world because they're warfighters and civilians who are working to serve us and they're sacrificing us for, for us every day and we want to sacrifice for them. Next one is the cost per user. We don't want to drive that to the bottom basement, but We want the cost per user to be in a tolerable range. We've done industry benchmarks to make sure that we're competitive and affordable. And and we do want to get some of the the efficiencies out to other services and other features and other things that the Department of Navy really needs to do. And the last one is adaptability. How do we make sure that we're building platforms and not bespoke things so we can make quick changes? Everyone cares when we have an adaptive problem like there was in Ukraine, whether it'll take two minutes or two months to make that change. And so if we can build that in the back end, and we are working with our partners that we were talking about earlier, as well as our existing partners to change the way that we do that. We've already gotten some wins there this year, and we want a landslide of wins in the next 12 months. What are some of the wins that you would be looking for? Or can you provide an example of one that you've had this year? Uh, some of them are beta because simplicity scales. And so we've had a group of volunteers who said, hey, let's do this differently. And we have flow three activities that allows our users to get directly into the cloud or perform their job functions with about 10% of the hops that it used to. We have some MFA, multi-factor authentication activities that help some of our users who don't have a CAC or work in a SCIF, and it saves them 10 steps a day. We have some back-end things that are potentially a a little bit less exciting to the layperson, but they just know that their systems work better. And so one of the ways that we're working there is zero trust is really important, but it can be abstract. Zero trust is exciting for us because we are inheriting, so Naval Identity Services, we are inheriting Um, so many of those activities so that in general people don't have to 
build their own. That's one example of an enterprise service where we can use what's been built once, many times, as opposed to everyone building themselves. The more enterprise services we have, the more it's going to be downhill running uh, in the best way for uh, we can focus on what's important to this group and not everyone has to bring their own stack. And then we're going to see, and we have seen already, uh, users who are more excited, less frustrated about uh, both their IT, but how they work. Information is uh, the, uh, the currency of the day. I also wanted to ask if you could provide a quick update on the UX pilot programs. The theme that we're talking about here are there are two, right? Um, so there's the last mile theme, uh, which is a, a small portfolio of pilots uh, for connectivity, and then there's the um, uh, fix my computer, uh, which is a small uh, portfolio of um, pilots for um, out of PEO Digital uh, for streamlining those things. So uh, to get into the the weeds for a second, uh, we have a, a 15 minute Scrum. Uh, a casting call uh, every night where we're talking about here's the update of status, uh, here are the impediments we can remove. So uh, the, the kind of day in and day out is they're making progress every 24 hours. Um, the specifics, like uh, on a quick uh, discussion, is um, we are upping the numbers for each of those things. So uh, like uh, probably a little bit more than linearly. Uh, the uh, the Nautilus virtual desktop, NVD. Uh, the last time we talked, I think we were at 31,000. We're at 42,000 users now. So that's upping the ante, pushing that to securing the defense industrial base and having more of our users adopt that as well as getting adoption up in the government. We see that the boot time on that is minuscule, under 20 seconds. Uh, that's a way where the previous benchmark was, like as Jared reported, was uh, 10 minutes. Like we want that to get out to more people. So we there are cases where it's a scaling thing. The technology piece has been solved, but where can we scale that on the basis? Uh, this is an interesting partnership. We have uh, USD R&E, so under uh, Honorable Shoe, uh, where we've done some experiments, technical experiments, and now we're trying to apply those to programs of record and sites who are doing actual things. So we have smart warehouses in Albany, Georgia, and Coronado, California, and we're saying um, how much better, uh, not is the technology, but is the performance of that warehouse when we implement these. And so that's something that for 5G specifically, or for some of our proliferated low Earth orbit activities, what is the difference in performance and cost of these? And so as we've done those pilots, we've both figured out, hey, this is much better, or this is cheaper, or do you believe how fast PLEO is? We knew that free space was faster, but the, the fact that they're delivering that from a commercial off-the-shelf perspective is incredible, and that, that there are some cost implications of that. But I'd say from a wins perspective, uh, separate from the technology proof, uh, we have users who are spending more time on mission every day, and we have about 15 ways to show that that number is incrementing. Uh, at different levels, um, and uh, and that's what we care about most. Justin Finelli, the acting chief technology officer for the Navy Department and the technical director of Program Executive Office Digital, speaking with Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Check out Kirsten's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.